Good morning, everyone. I think I'm more nervous doing it this way than I am doing it in church. Um, if you were looking at the notice sheet earlier in the week, uh, you might be expecting me to talk about the Word of God. We made a mistake. That one is going to be in July. Um, this, I'm, this morning I'm speaking about the resurrection. And it's a sermon I have long wanted to preach. It comes from deep within my heart. It's really personal. Each of us has our own reasons for following Christ. Some may not be able to put, put their finger on exactly why they believe, but believing seems absolutely in their heart like the right thing. Others, and I count me and myself in this group, others are able, in Peter's words, to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ. And this talk is my reason, or a big part of it. It's about the evidence for the resurrection. It turns out there is a remarkable amount of historical evidence suggesting that the resurrection did indeed happen. And when I say evidence, I mean the sort of evidence such as eyewitness accounts, ancient manuscripts, archaeological finds and so on that historians work from. And I mean evidence that could be used in a court of law, evidence that persuades, evidence that is used to write history. It's perhaps unusual for us to look at this sort of thing on a Sunday morning. It feels maybe a bit untrusting, maybe like having a lack of faith. But most of the evidence I will talk about is in the Bible. The Bible writers wanted us to have access to it. And so for me, this is just as much preaching the Bible as any other sermon I might give. And this stuff is simple. It really isn't complex. I think anyone, perhaps from larva age, secondary school age, maybe from about 10 or 11 upwards, should be able to make sense of what I'm going to say today. So I am going to spend in this talk a good chunk of time looking at the key pieces of evidence for the resurrection. Firstly, I will look briefly at supporting evidence that isn't in the Bible, and then the main event, the uh, biblical evidence, which will focus on one of the key resurrection texts, which is John chapter 20. And then before I close, I will briefly look at three reasons why having this evidence makes a difference to us, to us and to the world we live in. So I like to read the passage near the, at the beginning, so we're going to turn to John 20 in a moment. And as we do, I want you to listen to this, this scripture in perhaps a slightly different way. I want you to listen for the evidence. What in, what in this chapter is not just John saying it happened, but is John offering evidence that would help convince a skeptic, somebody who wasn't sure, that it really did happen. So as we read, listen out for where is that evidence in this. So I'm going to read from John chapter 20, um, starting at the first verse. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus's head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out with your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As John says, he has written to an audience that may not believe in order to help us believe. I mentioned earlier before I read the Bible, there at the passage, I mentioned supporting evidence. So this is the bit where I talk about why we believe the New Testament was written in the first century, 
not later, and written by people in the early church who had access to all the important information, and not written by completely different people years later who made it all up. Now, if you're happy to take that on trust, you can skip this bit, and you may want to spend the time looking at John 20 uh, and maybe the other resurrection accounts for evidence. So I'm going to talk briefly about why the Bible is, we believe the Bible is what we what it says it is. So on my shelves at home, there are books and DVDs. There are Bibles. And there are also some Star Wars DVDs, eight at the last count, hopefully nine soon. Um, both the Bibles and the DVDs contain remarkable stories of life and death, stories of victory, stories of defeat, of faithfulness and betrayal, hope and despair. They all include miracles and other unlikely happenings. How do I know which is a story of real events and which is fantasy? It's a real question. I suspect that some, maybe many people outside the church see that maybe see the Bible in a fairly similar way to the way they see Star Wars. It's full of exciting stories, but it's a long way from our culture. And perhaps it's more fantasy than historical record. Now, Star Wars has been around for just over 40 years. If you look through newspapers, magazines, maybe personal letters and so on from the last 40 years or so, you will find many, many mentions of Star Wars. But if you go back before 1977, you will find no mention of Star Wars. And that suggests what we know to be true. Star Wars was born basically out of nothing in 1977. And that's pretty much what you would expect to find if you were looking for historical evidence for around a work of fiction. On the other hand, if you do the same for the Bible, you find evidence of it in people's lives going way back, back all the way to Israel, to the Near East, to Southeastern Europe, back to the first century AD, the first century after Jesus's birth. And that is you find evidence going back find evidence of the Bible going back to the times and places in which the Bible claims the events it talks about took place. So I'm going to talk about two types in particular of this supporting evidence. Firstly, there are ancient manuscripts. There are full manuscripts have been found in Greek of the Gospels dating back as early as the fourth century. Um, that's a long time ago for a piece of papyrus to hold together. There are fragments dating to the first or early in the second century, which is, and I'm going to hold up a picture of maybe some of these fragments. These, I don't know if you can see that, these are little fragments of Matthew's gospel. Now there are fragments like that dating to the first or early in the second century. That's amazing when you think that not a single manuscript, original manuscript of, of any of Shakespeare's plays has survived just the 400 years since he wrote them. When you look at the gospel, furthermore, when you look at the gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, they show evidence of having been put together from even earlier written sources, which have now been lost, sadly, including at least one source which was written not in Greek, but in Aramaic, which was the language Jesus spoke with his disciples. The Bible texts have been around a long time. Now, I realize that doesn't prove to a skeptic that the Bible is not a work of fiction. But it's a lot harder to present fiction to, as fact when the people you're writing about are still alive to challenge you. Now, secondly, there is the early church. 
The early Christians left their marks all over the Middle East and Southern Europe, both on buildings, which have been discovered by archaeologists, and on society, which is observed and chronicled by non-Christian authors, such as Tacitus, who described the Roman Emperor Nero's brutal treatment of Christians following the destruction of much of Rome by fire in AD 64. So it's clear from outside the Bible that the early church existed, clear that it spread rapidly from Jerusalem across the Near Eastern Europe. It's also clear from the Book of Acts, but also from non-Christian sources, that the resurrection was central to the beliefs of the early church. And it's also clear, as I've just mentioned, that the early church was persecuted, that many of them were martyred. They died for their faith. As I just said, the resurrection was central to their faith. Why would they have gone to their deaths if they had any doubt about the truth of the resurrection? No, they died because they believed in the resurrection. So all that is by way of background for when we turn to the Gospels. And if you tuned out earlier, now is the time to tune back in. The point is that there is enough evidence outside the Gospels to prove that they are not complete works of fiction written centuries later about totally made up people. No, the people they, the Gospels describe really existed. The early church was really formed as a result of the events in Jerusalem that the Gospels describe. Not only that, but the early church had access to the Gospels. Indeed, the Gospels eventually became part of the Bible exactly because the early church considered them to be trustworthy. And the early church included many of the people in the Gospels who would have helped them check that what the Gospel said was right. Now, the Gospels are our most important pieces of evidence. They contain the eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts are the most important type of evidence to any historian and in any court proceedings. It's always been that way. Eyewitnesses have always carried more weight than any other sort of evidence. Now, John 20, which we've just read, tells us that there were multiple eyewitnesses to multiple resurrection events, the empty tomb and three separate appearances. The other gospels give testimony of different witnesses uh, who are present at the same events, but they also give testimony about additional resurrection appearances, such as the Emmaus Road, which we uh, read last week on Easter Sunday. So when we read John 20 and you listened for evidence, did you pick up that John 20 is eyewitness testimony? Did you pick up that it makes clear there were many eyewitnesses, not just one or two? And did you pick up that it describes several resurrection events, not just one or two? The empty tomb is described in all four Gospels. But although they agree on many things about this scene, there are some differences. All four agree that the tomb was empty, but they don't agree on whether there were angels or men, men dressed in white or indeed on how many angels or men dressed in white there were. They agree that the empty tomb was discovered by women, and they agree on who some of the women were, but they don't agree on the number of women. Does it matter that these gospel accounts are inconsistent? Actually, it does, but not in the way you might think. Witness accounts of any event do tend to differ particularly if the witnesses were surprised, shocked or frightened, as these must have been. People remember different details. 
Sometimes they fail to notice things that were obvious to other witnesses. So the inconsistencies actually support the claim that these are eyewitness accounts. Indeed, they support the claim that they are the accounts of more than one eyewitness, different people at the same scene, remembering different things and giving different accounts eventually recorded in different gospels. That's important because where eyewitness accounts of the same event differ in some details, but agree on others, we can be pretty sure that the things they agree on actually happened. I want to draw your attention to two other ways in which these accounts offer evidence for their own truthfulness. And you may have picked these up when we read John as well. The first is the level of detail that observed in many of the accounts of the resurrection, particularly in John 20. People who lie, people who make stuff up, stuff up after the event tend to be vague. They avoid detail in case they get caught out by it. But people reporting what they have seen give a lot of detail. As I mentioned, not all of it accurate, but they give a lot of detail. Now look at the detail in John's accounts around the grave clothes, around the movements of the people, around what they said, around Mary's encounter with Jesus, around the details of the upper room, around Thomas. And then read the other gospels, particularly Luke, and you'll find similar levels of detail on the Emmaus Road, for example. The other thing that is very interesting is the number of times that the gospels report things that if you were making it up, you wouldn't make it up that way. Women in that day and age were not regarded as credible witnesses. So if you were making this up, and you were making it up in the first century Jerusalem, you wouldn't claim that your most important witnesses, the first witnesses, the witnesses of the empty tomb, were women, including at least one woman of doubtful character, unless that's what actually happened. Or Thomas. If you were making this up, why report that one of the disciples doubted? Doesn't make sense. And then there's this thing about that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he could appear and disappear. And he could keep people who knew him well from recognizing him. Why on earth, if you were making this up, why on earth would you make it up that way? So I'm going to stop talking about evidence now. There's much, much more that I could talk about. That is a flavor of what I believe to be overwhelming evidence available to us that supports the case for the resurrection happening in the way it's described in the Gospels. I hope you can see that you do not need to be an expert to understand this. Yes, there are experts involved in ancient writing and carbon dating and archeology span and so on, but the overall narrative is breathtakingly simple. There were many eyewitnesses. They left us credible accounts in the Gospels, accounts full of detail, detail that could have been checked at the time and presumably was. Details you wouldn't make up if you were making the whole thing up. But more than that, people believed in the resurrection and joined the church. The church preached the resurrection as an essential element of the gospel. The church was persecuted and many died rather than to deny their belief in a resurrected savior. And it's, all, and it's recorded in the New Testament. It's mentioned in other ancient writings and archeological finds corroborate it. The evidence is strong. You may know the story of the book, Who Moved the Stone? 
one of many editions have been printed. Um, an English writer in the 1920s is set, up, set out to write a book disproving the resurrection. He was a skeptic, he was uh, an atheist, I think, um, and he wanted to show that this did not happen, this remarkable event that changed history did not happen. But the more he looked into the evidence, the harder he found it to write the book. And after maybe, I think, 10 years, in the end, he gave up and he wrote a different book, the book he called Who Moved the Stone, a book which recounts his journey into the evidence and shows why he came to believe in the resurrection and came to believe in Jesus. So why did the gospel writers give us such strong evidence? Three reasons, I think. I think the evidence speaks in slightly different ways to different groups of people. Firstly, the evidence speaks to those who have any kind of power or authority over people, over men and women in our world today or at any time. The evidence is a warning to people in power or authority. Back in John 19, the chapter before the one we just read, in the account of the trials, Jesus said to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. All power on earth is held and exercised on behalf of Jesus because the resurrection reveals that Jesus is the true king. And we, have, we are given evidence to, show, to prove that because those in power tend not to like to relinquish or moderate their, to relinquish their hold on power or to change the way they use their power unless they are confronted by with evidence. Jesus will hold those in power to account if they misuse their power to oppress or mistreat those under them. We have evidence to remind them of this. Secondly, the evidence speaks to those who do not believe in Jesus, to non-believers. The evidence is a challenge, a gentle one at first, but growing more insistent the more you ignore it. The evidence challenges everyone to decide their own position. Do you believe the resurrection happened? Do you believe this Jesus, who we read about today, is alive? When faced with this evidence, we all have a choice. As John puts it elsewhere in his gospel, we have a choice between light and darkness, between death and life. Or as he puts it in verse 23 of chapter 20, which we read, a choice between being forgiven and not being forgiven. And so the call to you, if you're in this position today, maybe thinking about this for the first time, surprised that Christianity has a historical basis with evidence, perhaps. Maybe you didn't realise that. The call to you is to turn and follow Jesus, to choose the light, to receive forgiveness, to receive new life from Jesus. And if you're in that position and would like to talk this over with someone, do please either drop us a line or get in touch or speak with anyone who you know from Three Counties. I think Dave's going to put up the uh, Three Counties email address on the screen. Uh, and, do, and do drop us a line uh, to, if you would like to talk this through with anyone or would like anyone to pray with you.
finally, this, the, um, the evidence speaks to believers. The evidence gives us confidence. It gives us confidence to challenge those in authority who misuse their power, as I've just mentioned. It gives, the evidence gives us confidence to speak the word of God boldly to all who need to hear it. It gives us confidence and strength to live our lives humbly and treat everyone gently, kindly, mercifully and lovingly, just as Jesus commanded us to. Confidence and strength to go the extra mile and turn the other cheek, as Jesus taught. Confidence to face both suffering and death, able to trust in Jesus, who we know to be alive and to be both Lord and Saviour, as Thomas, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now, often we Christians don't talk about confidence, we talk about hope. But we use the word hope in a slightly technical Christian sort of way, meaning something that is sure and certain, something we have confidence in. And that's why I've used the word confidence today. It's one of the ways we have confidence in our hope. One of the ways we know that our hope is sure and certain is through the evidence that we've seen today. John has in this chapter a lovely way of framing this hope. He evokes the creation story from Genesis 2. If you remember that story, it's set in the garden. God breathes life into Adam. He breathes on Adam and brings him to life. And Adam and Eve walk in the garden. So John links to this creation story in a couple of ways. Firstly, Mary, when she meets Jesus, she thinks he's the gardener and she's wrong. Who is she? On another level, she is right. Because Jesus is the true gardener, the gardener, the Lord of all creation. And then Jesus breathes on the disciples, giving them the Holy Spirit, the gift of new life in them. Which, of course, echoes how God breathed life into Adam in the first place. And John is telling us that this resurrection morning. This morning in the garden, this moment when Jesus comes back to life, is a new moment of creation. Indeed, it's a moment of new creation. We can see in the risen Jesus a glimpse of what this new creation is like and what it will be like. And so we have even more reason for hope and confidence. As we realise that resurrection is not just a fulfilment of all that had gone before. It's not just a clear and well-supported, strongly evidenced statement of Jesus as King, as Lord, as Saviour, as Son of God. But its resurrection is also a powerful revelation about our own future, the future of all who believe, the future of all who turn from darkness to light, our own future in God's new creation. Let's pray. And Lord, I thank you so much that you gave us this evidence. You gave us really firm foundations on which to believe all these hundreds and thousands of years later that Jesus really, truly did rise from the dead, did meet with the disciples, was seen by many people. Paul says 500 at one time. 
We thank you so much, Lord, that we have this evidence and we ask that you would equip us, as John said, with your Holy Spirit to go forth and gently and humbly share and speak your word, the evidence of your resurrection, to speak new life and new light into our world at this difficult time. And I pray too for all those who come to this evidence for the first time and meet with you for the first time. And I pray and I thank you that you will have mercy on them. And I pray they will turn to you and receive new life and new hope in your hope in you, your resurrection, your kingdom, your love and your new creation. Amen.